0: I'm Tanya Acker, and welcome to the pilot episode of my new podcast. Each week, we'll explore a challenging issue, and we'll also look for ways to solve it. This week, my guest is Yale Law Professor Peter Schuck, who explains why there are virtually no limits on the president's ability to invoke emergency powers, the serious implications that has on our democracy, and what we can do about it. Take a listen. has declared a national emergency under the National Emergency Act of 1976. It's a declaration that's getting a lot of attention, mostly because it's being used to justify the building of a very controversial wall on our southern border. It's become so heated that we might lose sight of just what the National Emergency Act is. Now, this is an act that gives the president a lot of power. And whatever you think about President Trump's use of it in these circumstances, you should know that he is not the first president to use it. Here to explain the act is Peter Shuck, the Simon Baldwin Professor of Law Emeritus at Yale University and scholar in residence at NYU. His many books include Meditations of a Militant Moderate, Why Government Fails So Often, and most recently, One Nation Undecided, Clear Thinking About Five Hard Issues That Defied Us. In his recently published op-ed in the New York Times, The Real Problem with Trump's National Emergency Plan, Peter describes his concerns with this very broad grant of executive power. Here's the other thing that everybody should know. Peter Shuck, from whom you're about to hear, was my torts and immigration professor way back in the day when I was a baby student at Yale Law School. He is someone who was not just a great professor and really a formative influence in kind of how I approach critical thinking. He's also a great friend and a general all-around great guy. Welcome to my show, Peter.
1: It's great to be here, Tanya. But I, I just want to correct the record. You were never a baby. You were always a giant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, Peter, what is the National Emergency Act and why did it come about? Why did Congress pass this law that gave the president so much power?
1: Well, it was a response uh, to Watergate and uh, the abuse of presidential power under President Nixon. Um, And it sought to consolidate and in some ways regulate all the national emergency declaration statutes on the books. So it set forth a uh, set of procedures and uh, timelines, uh, but it failed to do the most important thing, which was to specify the definition of uh, national emergency. And uh, it did such a poor job of that that it essentially defined national emergencies as anything that the president declares to be a national emergency.
0: It doesn't set any standards at all for what an emergency is?
1: No standards at all. So my op-ed piece in the Times, which is in today's Times online, sets forth a variety of different criteria that could be used and that Congress ought to use in uh, amending the statute.
0: What are the criteria that you think should be used?
1: Uh, Well, one should be that the emergency is imminent. That's the very nature of an emergency. Uh, It's not at all met in this case, since uh, we've been talking about a wall for uh, at least 12 or 13 years in Congress, since there was a statute enacted in 2006 on this very subject. So what you have here is just a disagreement in policy between President Trump and the House, but also uh, many in the Senate. But one criteria is imminence. Another is magnitude. Uh, How great is this? Is it simply, as I believe in this case, just a matter of domestic policy disagreement, or is it something that truly threatens the nation? Again, Congress doesn't uh, think that it threatens the nation in that way, and the real issue is which sorts of policies will best defend the southern border, uh, and that's something about which legitimate disagreements can occur. Another is that the emergency needs to be nationwide. Uh, Now it's conceivable that Trump's attempt to build a wall might meet this definition even though it's confined to uh, the southern border.
0: We're talking to Peter Schuck, scholar in residence at NYU, Simon E. Baldwin, professor of law emeritus at Yale University. Peter's talking about his recent piece in the New York Times criticizing President Trump's invocation of a national emergency to justify building the wall. This president isn't the first to invoke this act. President Obama invoked the National Emergency Act during his administration, too, did he not?
1: Yes. Presidents have been declaring national emergencies going way, way back. So there's nothing particularly novel about this. I have many criticisms of of President Trump, but uh, in this case, it is that he has invoked the act uh, for a purpose that uh, Congress never would have agreed to. But the real fault is not so much Trump, because you can expect people like Trump to exploit any opportunity to uh, get his way, regardless of the law and of political uh, customs. Uh, but rather Congress, which drafted a law that made it very easy for any president to seize power in situations in which the normal legal processes ought instead to prevail. Do you
0: think that the slope is as slippery as some are now suggesting that this declaration of a national emergency will give cover to, say, a Democratic president down the road suggesting that climate change is such an emergency and then invoking the act to justify action on that basis? Could we get there?
1: Uh, Yes, I think uh, other presidents will invoke it for, if if he gets away with this, will invoke it for a variety of other reasons that are perhaps even less uh, meritorious than this one. If the power is just lying there waiting to be picked up and a president feels very strongly about it and believes that Congress will not overrule him, it's just the nature of political operatives to pick it up and use it.
0: So explain how Congress could overrule a president in this circumstance. There are no rules to determine what a national emergency is. There are absolutely no guidelines. I've been elected president. I am now calling Situation X a national emergency. What are the checks on that power? How can Congress stop him?
1: Well, there are several checks, but none of them is likely to be very effective. One check is that Congress could enact a statute Uh, which prohibits uh, the president from doing this, but the president can then veto that statute. And I doubt that this Congress will override that veto. Uh, The House would, certainly, but the Senate probably wouldn't. A second thing is that the court might reject it, but I don't think the court will. First of all, it'll take a very long time to litigate this issue. I think the technical problem is that nobody may have standing to raise this issue in a court. Standing is a sort of a technical doctrine, which you learned in law school. and The gist of it is that in order to have standing to sue in a court, you have to allege that you've suffered a certain type of injury, not simply that you disagree with it or you think that it's illegal, but that you uh, have suffered a very specific and uh, individualized injury. And I don't know that anybody will be able to meet that standard until the president takes property under eminent domain to extend the wall, and then the property owner might be able to challenge it then. And the third control is public opinion. That's the most important of all in a democracy, and we'll have to see how this how this plays out.
0: I want to talk to you about what you said about who would have standing to challenge this. You know, standing actually is something that I talk about on my show Hot Bench. Sometimes no. somebody is suing over some money that somebody else <laughs> loaned to somebody else, and then they got themselves involved in it. And I have to try to explain that it's only the person who's actually been harmed who's got any business bringing the lawsuit. You raise a good point here. So if as a result of this declaration of national emergency, the president then uses the doctrine of eminent domain, which is a rule that says that the government can take private land. You get some money. You probably won't get the amount of money that you think your property's worth, but you will get some. So in this instance, if the government seized private land in order to build this wall under the National Emergency Act, then the landowner whose land was seized would have standing to challenge the action. If not the broader invocation of the act itself, they could challenge the seizing of their land.
1: The landowner probably could. It's not open and shut, but probably could. But the problem is that the landowner will have to establish that the president's declaration and the action that he's taken under it of seizing the land is in violation of the national uh, emergency statute and before the challenger can show that it's uh, in violation of constitutional limitations.
0: That's completely circular, because if the president invokes the act to exercise eminent domain and then the person whose land is seized with just compensation says, well, I want to challenge the seizure, they end right back up where they started, which is, well, the president said it's an emergency. So it's an emergency. Go home. I mean, it's it's really as simple as that. Or is it?
1: It is as simple as that, Uh, at least the logic is as simple as that, but as far as the law is concerned, you know, the challenger would have to show that the government can't exercise eminent domain in this case because it's doing so under an illegal declaration. That would enable a court to rule on this. But my guess is not only with respect to standing, but even if somebody had standing, The statute is so vague and the deference that's usually given to presidents when they're purporting to uh, act in an emergency situation is great enough that the courts probably would end up deferring to uh, the president.
0: You mentioned public opinion could be a good check on this exercise of power. Let's put aside sort of the issue of the wall and just sort of think about how we engage public debate in the country, because public opinion is shaped by public conversation and public debate. Right now, even with all of the access to information that we have, all of the media platforms that we have The debate is more balkanized, really, than ever. And we don't fact check ourselves to the extent that we should. And we certainly are, to some extent, I'd say, closed off to facts from sources that we don't like or from sources that come from the other side. How do we get people to become better fact checkers in an environment like this? And what are some of the things that you think that we're losing because we're not?
1: Well, the first thing they should do is listen to your program. Uh, But once they've they've done that, the obligations of a citizen uh, include the obligation to uh, pay attention to public affairs and to uh, push against the orthodoxies and and read, spend time listening to experts and, and weighing their opinions. And Americans spend much too little time on that and too much time on other things, which doesn't mean they're wrong. But... If we want a, a more vibrant political community uh, and a more accurate one, it's just going to take work on the part of citizens. It's also going to take a respect for expert sources of information that generally uh, are accessed through the traditional press or what Trump calls contemptuously fake news. Though so that's going to take an intelligence and a critical faculty that our citizens need to exercise. Having said that... This has traditionally been done by the parties. The parties are this significant mediator of information to citizens. Unfortunately, the party structure is now very, very polarized. And I think a lot of the polarization of the public has to do with the polarization of the parties. And this is not that traditional a pattern because it has a lot to do with the conservative Democrats gravitating the Republican party in the 1960s and 1970s. And it has a lot to do with the Democratic party moving to the left. So now there's almost no overlap between members of the Democratic Party and members of the Republican Party with regard to their opinions. And I think that's most unfortunate.
0: You describe yourself as a militant moderate. Peter, what is a militant moderate?
1: Well, it's a person who feels strongly that these issues are crucial uh, elements of civic debate and uh, who tends to be somewhat suspicious of extremists on both the left and the right. Uh, thinks that most correct opinions will be found somewhere in between. One who believes that there is such a thing as better or worse uh, information and analysis and does his or her best to follow that and be guided by that. I think most issues in politics and public affairs are less a matter of values and more a matter of the consequences, the information, the the effects of particular alternatives would have in the real world. So I think more attention needs to be paid to that and militant moderates tend to uh, focus on those sorts of questions.
0: I think perhaps you might agree with me that when news sources are balkanized, then it might be harder for civic participants to get all of the information that they need to be able to evaluate those consequences.
1: It's absolutely correct. And I also recognize a very, very important constraint on this form of citizenship, which is that uh, people have busy lives. And most people don't want to spend much more of their time on examining these questions uh, than they're spending now. And that's probably a good thing. In a liberal society, uh, we don't want want people thinking about politics all the time. Private life is crucial to a meaningful life. So uh, they have to look at often at intermediaries, which the press provides, and make up their own minds. But they need to have an open mind. They need to do the best they can to weigh evidence in the way they would in their ordinary lives uh, to come to a conclusion. And also to be a little less self-confident. They ought to have more doubts about the uh, accuracy or the solidity of many of the positions they take. They should enter this consideration more tentatively and then make up their minds.
0: Stop assuming that everybody's an expert on everything is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> you well, know- I just emphasize the fact that I think most people uh, don't want to spend more time on uh, public affairs than they do. And Correct. I also recognize that as an academic, I have a great privilege being able to focus on this in ways that most people can't or don't don't want to. But, you know, you have to do the best we can as citizens. And uh, I think we could do a lot better than we're doing now. Peter's
0: op-ed details some of the issues with the National Emergency Act of 1976, which gives the president very, very a broad power to declare emergencies. Peter, what do you want people to take away from your very provocative piece?
1: Uh, well, uh, the most obvious takeaway is that the president uh, has violated any plausible understanding of what constitutes a national emergency. And I also want them to hold Congress accountable for uh, enacting such a standardless statute. It, it's irresponsible of Congress to have done so, especially when it means turning over almost unlimited power to a president who declares an emergency. And uh, they should demand that Congress go back and revisit that statute and make it uh, more uh, disciplined and with standards that will protect us all from abuse by those in power.
0: Part of our democracy relies on us all taking action against what I call the because I said so theory of action. And as I understand Peter's piece, this is some because I said so decision making, regardless of who's making the decision. And I think that all of us uh, should pay really close attention to what our leaders are doing and the authority that they're giving themselves with which to do it. Professor Peter Shuck, you're really somebody who helped sharpen my focus and my thinking. You're a great man and a great friend. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Here's where I am on this. I don't think any president of any party should be permitted to invoke emergency powers just because he or she unilaterally decides that an emergency exists. Citizens in a democracy deserve more than that kind of because I said so decision making. But remember, we only get what we demand. Thanks for listening to our pilot episode of the Tanya Acker Show. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, the or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like us, please subscribe and please give us a five-star review. You can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, at Tanya Acker. Thanks for joining me, and I'll talk to you soon.